nerds, friends, librarians, and all you ilk. Welcome to the SS Librarianship Podcast, where this week we're talking about the archives. Mm -hmm. What do they do in those dang archives? And why are they not librarians? <laughs> uh, so our good friend Emily Booth, who is one of the students who's doing the um, the coveted M-A-S slash M-L-I-S program at Slice. She bridges the divide. Indeed. She sits down to tell us a little bit about what makes an archive different. Why is the work that the archive does a little bit different? Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's, a really, it's a really great chat. Yeah, I learned a lot. Yeah, and so then also from Mind Grapes, uh, we've got a couple of books, and uh, Sam's been watching some science fiction, mm -hmm. which is so unusual for Sam. <laughs> I don't know what came over me. <laughs> well, I guess then um, let's just have it a short intro today. Let's get this one started. Let's jump right in. I'm Allie Sullivan, and ones don't even get a rhyme because they're garbage. And I'm Sam Mills, and you know, I've often thought of becoming a golf club. Emily. Hello. Welcome to the show. Yeah, it's so nice to have you on as a proper guest <laughs> instead of like a special Halloween segment, although that was great too. I do enjoy talking about creepy things. Yeah. <laughs> as Allie well knows. <laughs> you like to creep me out more than any other person I've ever met. <laughs> I could say it's one of the greatest pleasures in my life right now. Yeah. You're very good at it too. Speaking of which, that's probably a good segue into one of your possible mind grapes topics today, right? Oh, yes. Oh, so I was reading or at least attempting to read this book called Mutants on Genetic Variety and the Human Body. And so it explains in incredible detail how exactly human deformities occur. And it has some lovely illustrated pictures of dead babies with these mutations. And normally I'm pretty OK with graphic and strange. I think you need to be a little closer to me. OK, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> But it I got can, yeah. I can cut stuff. <laughs> give me like give me a second. Okay. All right. So <laughs> it it's really interesting. It's like very scientific, and it's a little it's so scientific it's sometimes a little hard to understand all of it. Cause mm -hmm. Talking about the different cell bodies and stuff like that, and how uh, twin how uh, conjoined twins are formed and. So, and, um, one of the most interesting things I thought was uh, how some people get these tumors on their neck. And it's actually because when we're in the womb, there's these five cartilage bands that start forming around us. And normally these close off and they leave spaces for the ear cartilage, neck cartilage, and jaw cartilage. But in some people, it doesn't close over properly. So ear cartilage starts spilling out of their neck. So they get ear cartilage growths on their neck, which is actually what goats have. Like during fetus development, it yep. starts to spill out? Yes, yeah, starts to spill out. It just kind of creeps wow. out. And a lot of, for a long time, they didn't realize what it was because of these mysterious <laughs> lumps on their neck until, <laughs> I believe, a scientist in the 1800s dissected it finally. That's great. What's on your mind, Grace, Sam? <laughs> I could go on for a very long time about this. It was very interesting, very deeply graphic. So if you oh. like that kind of stuff, it's a good book to read. <laughs> So if you enjoyed Emily's previous recommendations, the last time she was on the show, you will love mutants. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. No, continue if you wish. But you were telling me the other day that you were actually freaked out enough by it slash daunted enough by it to n- stop reading it. Yeah, I actually had to take a little break from it for a while just because <laughs> some of the pictures were so disturbing to oh, me. Oh, man. Especially I was reading them on the bus and I was getting some weird ass looks. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so you think about things like what's it going to look like if I'm watching, you know, a hardcore brothel scene from Game of Thrones on the <laughs> bus, but you don't think about what's going to be happening when you're reading a scientific book on the bus. I don't. I didn't realize there's going to be graphic pictures in it. I'm like, oh, science. Let me read this. All of a sudden, dead baby. Oh God. <laughs> <laughs> Surprise! Surprise! <laughs> And then there's a picture of um, a satyr raping a goat, like a a marble statue. And there's a big graphic, like full page picture in there. And I was just like, (laughs) (laughs) no one saw that. Was that connected somehow? No, it was related to the ear thing because goats have that. Like uh, at least 50% of goats have this weird cartilage deformity. And that's where those little like neck dingles on goats come from. They're like the ear cartilage thing. (laughs) Neck dingles? I don't know. I don't remember the proper scientific scientific term technical scientific term neck dingles okay <laughs> fair enough yeah and so that's where they hypothesize that people neck tumors are coming from is that okay. sex with goats logical yeah. yeah makes sense can't argue with that <laughs> <laughs> so have you read anything else lately that you like when you when you couldn't take any more of that what did you turn to well i turned to uh, one of my favorite authors who is sarah vowell in a book called the wordy shipmates Mm-hmm. which is about the founding of America with the Puritans in the mid-1600s. She's showing us the book right now. I know. <laughs> She's like showing it off. She's like, like reading like... rainbowing it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that's pretty great. <laughs> Into a magical world of Puritans. <laughs> <laughs> and we have our episode title already. Oh, dear. I even bookmarked special sections in case I wanted to talk about them. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> You're making, is, you're making us look bad. She is by far the most prepared guest we've ever had on this show. So Sarah Vowell is sort of a comedic writer? Yeah, a little bit. She's kind of like Mary Roach, who's another big nonfiction okay. writer that I like, who does comedic Because I haven't read any history. of her books, but my exposure to her has been, she's a, often a contributor on This American Life. Oh, and I didn't know that. pretty funny. She's not always like, you know, hysterical, but she's always really insightful and quite, yeah, comedic. I know she mixes actually a lot of her books mix past with current political events. So she kind of explains current political events with things that happened in the past, hmm. which she does in this book as well. And also assassination, assassination vacation. Okay. Which explores the history of trying to assassinate American presidents. <laughs> fun. <laughs> I think it's fun. How many have been successfully assassinated? Just. Oh, I two. can't remember. Is it two? Two, I think. I read that book last year. Wait, J.F. Hamilton president when he was killed? Uh, I think. Then that's three. Although that was a duel. Yeah. Not an assassination. (laughs) Have have you guys seen Brad Neely's JFK song? No. (laughs) Oh, man. It's uh, Brad Neely is the guy who did the Professor Brothers and uh, the the Harry Potter thing I talked about a couple of weeks ago. Mm -hmm. The the redubbing of uh, of Harry Potter 1. And... um, (laughs) He does these songs. Uh, there's the JFK song and the Washington song. The JFK one's like, JFK. And it's like, you know, like, he uh, he could read minds. And it gets, it's, you know, it's a fantastical song about his fantastical abilities. I will link to it. It sounds like it should I be can't. from um, Clone High. It is. Uh, that was almost a little Clone High. <laughs> 
<laughs> so so okay so she draws parallels between past historical events and present stuff so what does she connect the puritans to well let's see especially with the our way we wage wars in other countries it's for their own good so that's kind of the puritans drove over to america that way like the official seal of massachusetts back then was a native american person with a little voice bubble coming out of mouth saying please help us oh Oy. dear <laughs> yeah. yeah so Oy. it's like this divine right to go out and save you even if you don't want to be saved and not so, only do they <laughs> have claim to the land, but actually they'll be better at taking care of it than you. Yeah, and, and it's you for your own good, of course. They're here, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. And so they kind of, she kind of draws on that to say, that's why I went over to Vietnam, that's why I went over to the Philippines, that's why I went over to the Gulf War, is to save you and to yeah. help you. Because we're good Christians. Yeah, And yeah, it's like that's... the Christian charity idea. We're doing this to help you. Dude, this is like mind-blow moments, kind of just... I know what kind of blew my mind is I um I realized in this book that uh, when the Puritans came over, actually the word term Puritan means they want to purify the church of all uh, Catholics. Mm-hmm. So that's where Puritan <laughs> comes from because they hate Makes Catholics. Sense. Like We're there were stabbing annoying. wars with Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> but they came over and um, they were able to take over a lot of the American land pretty easily. That's because 90% of the Native American population had died. Mm-hmm. Like, in all of the Americas, nine nine out of ten Native Americans died from this horrible plague that ravaged everything. Yeah. Right, yeah, that these these diseases they hadn't been exposed to, and getting syphilis in return didn't really make up for that. Didn't yeah, make the same dent, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating because really, I mean, the words that are used around that rhetoric have changed a lot, but the message is still very much the same. Yeah, the way we live is the way you should live, so we're gonna come help you live that way. Oh yeah, yeah. That's weird, man. I'm really curious to read her writing. I'd be very curious to check that out because she's such a great speaker when she's on the radio. Yeah, no, she's she's very interesting. She kind of flits around topic to topic. So Mm -hmm. if you're kind of okay with that style of writing, it's really engaging. But if you just want her to focus on one thing, it's not a (laughs) book for you. No, that sounds like, uh, considering most of my reading takes place on Tumblr these days, that sounds perfect. (laughs) I cannot concentrate. Everything in the world has become a too long didn't read for me. Yeah, (laughs) it's bad. (laughs) What about you, Sam? What have you been getting up to this week? Um, I think I mentioned this briefly a little while ago, but I had been watching V, and I have now finished V. Hey! Um, so this you is a get a medal. Science fiction. No, not really. It wasn't that long. <laughs> um, this is a science fiction series that was made in Vancouver maybe four or five years ago. Um, maybe a little longer than that. Sometime between Lost and Revolution, because Elizabeth Mitchell is the star, and she okay. was between those two shows at the time. Um, and she's most of the reason why I wanted to watch it. I love Elizabeth Mitchell. Um, and it was, it started off pretty strong and quickly fell victim to the kind of thing that happens to a lot of shows that get filmed in Vancouver, which is a, it really looks like Vancouver, mm. which if you know Vancouver at all, gets really distracting and B it's full of Canadian actors and again this may be more of a if you're Canadian you notice it but the show is set in New York and half of the actors and the smaller the part the more likely it is to happen sound so Canadian Mm. that you just cannot take them seriously and so it's really strange because the principal actors for the most part are all Americans yeah and sound like they could be in New York 
there's one Brit, but he's, you know, got a good backstory for being there. Yeah. And when you're with them in their sort of little hideout where they're, you know, fighting against this alien invasion, it feels like a really well done science fiction show. And then they go out into the city or they interact with new characters or whatever. And you're like, oh, this feels like Canadian TV. <laughs> <laughs> Which unfortunately is still not a very good thing. <laughs> but anyway, the premise of the show, for those that don't know it, and it's based on an earlier, I think, miniseries or show that was done in like the early 80s, uh, is... These aliens show up and they park ships all over the world uh, atop all the major cities and they say, hello, we have advanced medicine and technology and we are here to help you. And they look just like pretty attractive human beings and they start making peace with all the leaders of the world and start getting you know, permission to become part of their cities and take up residence and all this kind of stuff. And then at the same time, this FBI agent, played by Elizabeth Mitchell, becomes aware of the fact that actually there have been Vs on Earth for much longer than mm -hmm. is obvious. And like there were these advanced scouts that were sent. And that their motives are not what they seem. They, <laughs> they are, are not, you know, Klaatu from the day the Earth stood still. <laughs> um, they're much more insidious than that, and they're, you know, lizards underneath this <gasps> beautiful human skin that they've grafted onto themselves. And um, and one of the things that's fascinating about this sort of escalation, of <laughs> this sort of escalation of um, this power struggle between those with Elizabeth Mitchell's character who know about the truth and then everyone else who's sort of supporting the Vs is that it's mostly a power struggle between two very powerful, um, very flawed, kind of obsessive women. Which might, in retrospect, be why it didn't do all that well, which is mm. kind of sad. Yeah. But, like, Elizabeth Mitchell's character, Erica, is uh, very strong and also very flawed and has a very kind of fraught relationship with her ex-husband and her son that's explored. And she becomes the leader of this little cell of resistance fighters, basically. Mm -hmm. One of whom is an actual V himself. Um, and <coughs> then the leader of the Vs is Marina Baccarin, mm -hmm. who is amazing. Yes, uh, as always. And again, a really kind of interesting, fraught relationship with her own daughter, and as later turns out, her own mother. Uh, and who is the same person? <laughs> <laughs> my sister, my mother, my sister, my daughter. No. <laughs> um, they're different people. And unfortunately, neither of them, her mother or her daughter, are as good um, at acting as no. Marina Baccarin, which is kind of sad. I don't remember her name, but if you guys ever watched Smallville, the girl who played um, Kara, Supergirl, no. not a great actress. She plays her daughter. Um, but what's interesting is the same way that Marina Baccarin is able to use her really excellent acting skills to be sort of a emotionless lizard-like creature, <laughs> the fact that the, that the girl who plays her daughter isn't the greatest actress ever kind of also works in her favor because mm -hmm. she's able to be, you know, rather sort of emotionless and... And she's a lizard. Exploring being human for the first time because, ah. yeah, it, it works well with her level of talent. Gotcha. But uh, overall, really fun, but not great. Like, mm. I could sit here and knit in front of it, which isn't a great vote for a show. Because mm. usually if I'm really into something, I have to basically just be watching it. Yeah. I can't be talking to anyone. I can't be doing anything else. So the fact that I made most of a hat during season two isn't a great vote in its favor. <laughs> But it was it was fun. And it, it ends really abruptly. So warning, if you do decide to get into it, it was canceled with, I guess, not a lot of warning. Mm. Usually shows that are canned are able to come up with some kind of ending. Yeah. But they really didn't. 
they had a very I think what they were trying to do was they were desperately making a play for like give us season three so they did this insane season ender <laughs> for season two where like yeah. a bunch of people die and all kinds of crazy stuff happens in the game the board is like totally reset and then you never get to see what happens next oh that's <laughs> so frustrating so it's too bad I mean on the plus side Elizabeth Mitchell was cast in Revolution and I can now mm-hmm. get my Elizabeth Mitchell fix there she's just <laughs> so gorgeous and so talented and so yeah. good at playing these these really flawed women, right? I mean, we talk a lot about how we want strong female characters, but that often turns out to be these perfect female characters who mm-hmm. can do no wrong, which is kind of not the point, right? Yeah. The point is to have an interesting person who's powerful, who has power, who is a leader, but who is flawed and you know has their own problems. And she's she's always played those kinds of characters, and mm-hmm. it's great to see her getting to do that again in Revolution. She was Juliet on Lost. She right? was Juliet. Yeah. Yeah. My favorite character on Lost. That's where She's I first saw her. She's a great character. Yeah. Yeah. And again, very flawed and very ambiguous. And yeah. Yeah. For sure. So, yeah, worth it for her and for some of the other actors, but overall, eh, almost like a <laughs> B science fiction kind of thing. <laughs> what about you? I've been reading. And uh, to sort of make up for the fact that last time I talked about kind of regular adult fiction, not last time, time before, sorry. Um, <laughs> the weeks, they all mash together. Um, I've been reading a book that's a little kind of crazy bonkers go nuts in the magic science time travel realm. Time travel. Time travel. It's uh, a book called Anubis Gates, the Anubis Gates, and it's by Tim Powers. Oh, I've heard of this. Yeah, it's a really crazy book. So um, the main character is, uh, it starts out in the 1980s or 1990s. I can't quite remember. Um, He is a romantic poetry scholar. And he's trying to study this one particular poet who's who's a little bit... He's not one of the big... Is it the big five? Big six? Big six. Big six. He's not one of the big six. Don't quiz me on who they are, but there are six. <laughs> I could probably name them if I wanted to, but I don't. So um, he's studying this poet. He gets approached um, by this like eccentric gabillionaire um, as a Coleridge expert. He has in the past published a... Uh, rather definitive biography of Coleridge. Um, that's kind of what he's famous for in the um, in the literary world and in the scholarly world. And he um, he says he's invited out to this guy's like estate in England. And he's like, okay, I guess. And he goes out there, and uh, he's kind of interviewed about his Coleridge expertise. And yeah, he's an expert on Coleridge. He wrote the book on the guy. Um, and then he's like, okay, well. I can time travel, and <laughs> this is like that Isaac Asimov story. Oh, I don't know about that one, but um, the guy is basically like, so I am taking a bunch of money to take all of these tourists back to hear Coleridge speak. Whoa. Because uh, the way that time travel works in this world is it's really interesting. So the way that time travel works is like if you imagine that um, time is a river, with a um with ice like a layer of ice frozen over the river so there's always movement underneath but there's a layer of ice on top mm-hmm. now every now and again cracks will form in the ice and you're able to break through move across and fall into another crack but these cracks are intermittent they don't happen they're not permanent um so you know they'll, they'll eddies in the space-time continuum they are eddy- <laughs> pretty much eddies in the space-time continuum you're supposed to say is he Oh, Sam, I'm sorry. Next time I will. Next time I'll do it. Uh, <laughs> but um, 
so yeah, he's uh, he's supposed to kind of go back as their Coleridge expert. So he's supposed to give them a lecture, and then they all jump through the space time continuum. They go and they sit and they hear Coleridge speak, and then they're all supposed to uh, get up and, and go come back home before the before the the ice cracks disappear. So, um, but before they can do that, he's like he like takes a break from the lecture to go like I don't know get a get a beer or something, and he's kidnapped. And so it's all about this, um, you know, 20th century man trapped in in romantic era, romantic period England, having to survive. He has no money. Um, sounds amazing. And he has like, I mean, he has knowledge of the time. He has an intimate knowledge of the time, but he can't really like he has a lot of trouble using that knowledge because at the same time he's being tracked down by people who know who he is. And like he was kidnapped for a reason, but we ha- like I haven't finished the book, so I haven't quite mm. figured out why he was originally kidnapped. But there's also these, um, there's like like gypsies and and magic and other people who are clearly from his era. Like um, there's apparently he, he ends up uncovering this kind of group of people who's there whose signal is that they wi- they they'll they'll whistle yesterday the Beatles tune because uh-huh. nobody there knows what it is, yeah. right? But. Yeah, because like so, there's one part where he's like he's like destitute Even that's and sort of paradox creation material though. Yeah, so people so hear that song. Yeah, so it's really crazy. It's and it's um it's a really cool book. Yeah, there's one point where he's kind of like wandering around destitute in London, and he hears someone whispering yesterday, and he's like, "Am I insane?" <laughs> and then he starts like singing it and running through London, being like, "Ah!" Um, so it's a really amazing book, uh, Anubis Gates by Tim Powers. It's um. I haven't quite finished it yet, but it's it's bonkers. <laughs> and there's like magic and clowns and 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 like underground bum rings <laughs> and underground uh, clown rings. Uh, well, there's like well yeah, there's like a clown who's one of the he's like leader of one gang of bums and then there's like <laughs> a rival gang of bums and like cuz he starts to try to beg for money and mm. uh, that doesn't work out for him very well because he's not part of the the the, 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 beggar's, guild. the beggar's guild pretty much yeah so it's it's really it's really fun <laughs> that sounds like a lot of fun i highly it recommend it very um do you guys remember that old next generation episode of berlinghoff rasmussen where matt frewer plays this time traveler that shows up on the enterprise and he claims that he's yeah. from the future yeah yeah, yeah i remember this actually from the past and he's there yeah. to steal technology to go back and make yeah. money off of it yeah 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 i remember yeah. that one uh, it sounds like it's sort of like a whole underground network of yeah. Berlinghoff Rasmussen's just out yeah. for themselves in the streams of time. Yeah, and there's like <laughs> there's all this weird like, um, it's it's like is it is it magic? Is it technology? Is what what is it? Mm. Is it medicine? Because there's also a point where they make like a, they make like a like an anatomical slash magical um, facsimile of Lord Byron. <laughs> <laughs> and have him traipsing through London, like it's really weird. It's it's cool, but it's it's a very like I've been reading it right before bed too, which doesn't help because it's a very complicated book, and I'm kind of like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> how have your dreams been the last few uh, nights? Well, <laughs> I haven't been talking my sleep again, so that's good. That's good. <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of what I've been up to a little bit. Uh, yeah, I haven't been had time for too too much. A lot of meetings. Mm, yes, it's that time of the term. So, do check out Anubis Gates. Yep. Do check out Sarah Vowell. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
maybe check out the the deformity book if you have a stomach for it. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. And put that in the maybe pile. <laughs> put the maybe pile. <laughs> it is really interesting, especially if you already have a scientific background. Hmm. Does it is it accessible to a layperson? Yeah, I, I had to read things over a couple times in certain sections just to try to understand what was going on. But it is it's accessible. It's like um the disappearing spoon, the history of the periodic table of elements. It kind of like it guides you through a short history of what's going on and gives you like. The vocabulary to understand oh, okay. it. Okay, like um, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. Yeah, of. like that one. They give you okay. a primer. They on give the you a primer <laughs> for the most part. I think sometimes the author forgets and just kind of jumps into <laughs> things too. <laughs> too fascinated with the gruesome details. <laughs> I know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And yeah, and V, if you need to knit something and you really love Elizabeth <laughs> Mitchell, yeah, it's your go to. But otherwise, otherwise, maybe give it a pass. <laughs> Watch Let's Lost and Revolution instead. Yeah. Yeah. That's just a good general rule. Just watch Lost and stuff. Yeah. One of the really great things about our program at Slace is that we have uh, a unique opportunity. Um, An opportunity that some of us take advantage of and some of us are too lazy to. (laughs) Yes. Lazy is definitely the right word. So in addition to the Masters of Library and Information Studies at the iSchool at UBC, you can also get a Masters of Archival Studies. We actually do offer the Archival Studies program, and you can also do um, a dual degree. Takes a little bit longer, but uh, you actually exit the program with the full two master's degrees under your belt. It's not like, you know, you've majored in one and minored in one, or you've minored in another. (laughs) You actually get two full master's degrees. And our very close friend, Emily Booth, has taken them up on that offer. You'll be able to dual wield books <laughs> and records. I'm hoping they'll give me two diplomas so I can dual wield these diplomas. I think oh, they I'm do. Oh, I'm sure they will. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> if I don't get two diplomas in the mail at the end of this, I'll be incredibly sad. I think I think you do get I think, the yeah, full I think that, two I think diplomas. That's the guarantee. Yeah. That's why All you're right. the big bucks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. For an extra year, I think it's worth it to get an extra diploma. Yeah. Um, and so one of the things that I think would be important to talk about and something we've asked you before is a lot of our uh, students may not, or a lot of our students, a lot of our listeners are students that are still in library school and may not fully understand the nuances or perhaps they're not actually nuances and we as the uneducated people perceive them as nuances (laughs) of what is the difference between a library and an archive so emily what is the difference (laughs) between a library and an archive all right i'm gonna give kind of a very basic overview of this (laughs) i mean if i went into all the details i'd be here for 10 hours and you'd all be passed out So basically, um, an easy way to think of it is in some ways that libraries have um, commercially available published materials. That's only what they have in their stock and what they give to the people who who are the users. Archives do occasionally have published materials, but generally they're looking for more unique, rare, unpublished materials. So this can include like papers, artifacts, diaries, art, film, photographs, letters, and an increasing number of digital objects. 
which is sort of a whole other area in itself, right? The, yeah. Um, digital archives. And we I know you've been taking a lot of classes on that lately, right? I'm taking digital preservation right now with Luciana. So, yes, <laughs> it's a very exciting topic. <laughs> For those who don't know, part of what's so powerful about the MAS program <laughs> at Slice is that we have Luciana Durante, who is like a world-renowned expert in archives, right? Yeah, she basically created the textbooks about it, especially with diplomatics. I mean, if you mm -hmm. want to cite something, you look back far enough, Luciana is always there. <laughs> <laughs> and as I understand, she's a pretty intense professor. Yeah, no, I mean, she is whip smart and kind of amazing and a quite jazzy dresser. Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. She's yes. always in stiletto heels. I've seen those heels. Like, they are. The fanciest of stiletto heels. <laughs> <laughs> so who's the who's the kind of audience for archives? Is it is it the general public or are or is there kind of a combination of public as well as private archives? Well, there's a big difference. Um, Generally, if there's public archives, the public can come in and use it if they want. Researchers often come, especially um, looking for historical researches and family lines, stuff like that. But there's also a big area of corporate archives, which kind of delves into records management a bit, which I can discuss later, or is looking after the institutional memory of that organization. Right. So, I mean, the, the audience must vary as much as it does for libraries, right? But presumably... I don't know, the way I've always thought about it, and this is probably quite naive coming from the library end of things, but is that in a library, your primary focus is on your present user population and sort of what yeah. they need, it, mostly in terms of, as you're saying, commercially available materials. Whereas an archive is more focused on sort of preserving a body of work that may not necessarily have a large audience attached to it. Is that... Well, yeah, sort of. That's kind of a, it's a fine way to put it because I say libraries want to help users right now, and they'll do everything to help you get this information. You can take out the material. You can do whatever you want with it besides, you know, setting it on fire. <laughs> we well, you can. That. You can. But you'll get a library fine. Discourage it. <laughs> Don't speak Latin around the books. <laughs> <laughs> but with an archive, nothing really ever leaves the archive with the patrons, we have this nice reading room. You can come in and look at the records there, but you're not really allowed to take it away because we're afraid you might damage it. Because again, it's unique, often unpublished materials that is just one of a kind. Mm -hmm. And so you can take photocopies as long as you don't take the actual materials out of the archive and you handle them very, very carefully. <laughs> <laughs> so it's about sort of needs in perpetuity, a long line yeah. of needs. It's a, it's a longer view in a lot of ways. Because we're looking for users not just now, but users 150 years from now. What do they want to need? And we want to make sure the materials stay in good condition so people in the future can also use them. That said, are there, there must still be something in the way of kind of user studies to do with archives, right? Like in terms of projecting into the future of what a community is going to need? Like, uh, <laughs> it gets into actually yeah. kind of a sticky ball with that one because oh, okay. we don't want to assume too much what right. people are going to want to need. We don't want to make assumptions about what they need and get rid of something else that they actually might need in the future because we didn't anticipate that need. So, so it's more of a kind of deposit everything policy? Yeah, I mean, there is appraisal and we do get rid of some things and don't accept other things, but generally we want to take more just in case there is a future need for that, mm -hmm. even though we don't have studies to back it up right now. Hmm. And that's a really interesting kind of departure from current library practices, because um, in a lot of our classes, we talk about moving from this uh, just in just in case model to a just in time model. So that's a really uh, a really cool way to put it. 
Um, so if uh, if I'm looking for archival materials, um, how do I find them? What what kinds of do you do you use cataloging systems? How how would I find things generally as a practice? I'm sure every archive is as different as the one next door, but. Uh, yeah, what we do is called um, arrangement and description, and so it's kind of different from libraries, where we, let's say we'll get in a fall, which is like a collection, uh, usually from one creator, though sometimes two. Like, if I'm going to give you the exact definition, which I wrote down to make sure, it's the uh, the font, <laughs> which is like F-O-N-D-S, but we say font. Right, be because it's, oh, it's yes. French. Yes. <laughs> It's the whole of the records that a physical or juridical person accumulates by reason of its function or activity. And it's the highest level of archival aggregation. So it's like the biggest area we can get. I'm trying to think of it in library terms. The biggest collection, mm -hmm. I guess you could put it like that. Biggest aggregation of documents So if a records. library has, say, a collection of the complete published works of an author, the archival equivalent to that might be all of their notes and correspondence. And yeah sort of personal papers? Yeah, it's a Walt Whitman, all the stuff he wrote, like all his notes about what he's going to do, like and his personal letters, even his bank stuff comes in sometimes. As well, I suppose, as the originals of the works, right? Yeah. And so all that will come in, and so that's the Walt Whitman fall. Okay. So what do you do next? <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what's different, especially about um, libraries, is that we're not going to go and physically arrange things because we want to preserve the original order. So you go chronologically whenever possible? No, no, it's no, the order no, no. it oh. comes in. Yeah. Oh, sorry, yeah. sorry. <laughs> so well, we have this thing in archives called respect for original order or respect vol. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's um, so it's the kind of one of the fundamental principles in archives. So we maintain records in original order, which serves two purposes. First, it preserves existing relationships and evidential significance that can be inferred from the context of the records. Mm. And second, it exploits the record creator's mechanisms to access the records, saving the archives the work of creating new access tools. So we just want to look and see how the creators used the records and keep it in that order, because that's how they were used and that's how they functioned. And that preserves the context of how they were used, which is really what we're interested in. So is this where the idea of finding aids yes. comes in? Is that rather than taking, say, a set cataloging standard like the ones we work with, MARC or RDA or whatever, you're looking at the, the content and context of the font itself and creating a finding aid that just works for it? Is that the idea? Yeah, basically, because we want to do intellectual, not physical arrangement. Okay. And so we intellectually arrange it on these finding aids so that people can find the stuff in these fall without physically rearranging them. Huh. Wow. And we do have our own rules like rad. Like Canadian archivists are rad is like a saying we like to have. <laughs> it's the Aww. rules. It's, it's basically the cataloging equivalent of RDA. Okay. And so it's rules for archival description. Okay. And there's also ISAD and EAD, which are different rules and different things. So it's kind of like we have MARC. And so you take those and then apply them in a unique way for each collection or phone. Yeah. So okay. it's kind of like cataloging, where it's like the rules you follow when making a finding aid. Okay. Hmm. Like photographs had to be described in this manner. So there's sort of rules based on... Um, Even grammatical Form ones. as well, yeah. right? So it, it is a lot like RDA in some ways. Like you write it out like this. You can't put like photographs 24. You put 24 photographs. Oh, okay. So a bunch of very specific okay. nitpicky rules. All right. 
And so are these um, finding aids usually print-based or can you find them online or? They're increasingly online these days. Like for a long time, they were just print-based. So you have to go to the archive and then ask the archivist what's going on and they can show you the finding aid. And then they will roll out their box of documents with their white gloves. <laughs> <laughs> but now it's mostly online. I mean, we're yeah. slowly digitizing objects as well, putting them on there. But archives often have very... I know, secretive information. We don't want it getting really out there. So there's a lot of personal mm -hmm. information from people. So a lot of times we keep it offline so people actually still have to come in. Which is kind of a really interesting distinction as well between libraries and archives, at least in North America. Libraries are very focused on access, on sort of access for everybody to everything is kind of the place, yeah. right? And in a lot of ways, archives are sort of the antithesis to that. Well, I don't know about antithesis. We definitely want to provide access, which is the whole reason for creating a finding right. aid. But it's going to be to more specific yeah. groups of people sometimes. Because we have a lot more um, legal regulations on what we can show as well. So when someone wants to donate stuff, they can say, I don't want this shown until 75 years after I'm dead. And we have to follow those rules or else we're in violation of them and terrible things might happen. <laughs> wow. The archival gods would send out a lightning bolt and burn down the archives. <laughs> Luciano will appear brandishing a trident. <laughs> you have failed! <laughs> okay, all right. So it's not quite... Yeah, you're not, you're not hiding things, but you're following no. more specific and sometimes idiosyncratic directions i guess i know because there's a lot of personal stuff in there like someone's social security number could be in their collection and right. all their bank records right. and so we have to be very careful about what we can show people and when hmm. and often it's sort of after they're dead i would imagine that's usually yeah when the full it's usually fall comes out how right? it goes <laughs> but like kind of reminds me um so let's say someone dies and their child gets their records Often that person will try to rearrange them to make Ooh. sense, try to like help us with our task. Right. Like, I'm going to be great and I'm going to rearrange these in a ways that make sense. That is a terrible plan. Let me put that out there. Please do not rearrange the records. <laughs> Just leave it as is. We can figure it out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm th that's actually really fascinating. Like I'm thinking about your Walt Whitman example and the order in which he had things or even... I don't know where they were placed, maybe around his office or something would all be significant, right? Yeah. I mean, what we call is that the uh, archival bond, which is like the network of relationships that records have with each other. Mm. And I was trying to think of an analogy to try to describe it. And the best I come up with is kind of like a spider web that connects all these different things together. And if you cut the ties to it, it starts falling apart and doesn't make sense anymore. What it, mm. You can't tell what it was. That's it's, a beautiful analogy. Yeah. <laughs> well done. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, so you have to keep all the different strands intact or you can't tell what it actually is, the whole thing. Hmm. And you're not, yeah, and you're not imposing an outside order. Like I'm thinking about a library equivalent to that and it would just be, we just cut the cut the divisions into very <laughs> equal divisions and then describe each of them and put them into the system we already have, right? Yeah. <laughs> because we're focused on access above all else. Which no, is very different. We'll just describe the web in great detail, but you're not allowed to touch it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's great. So speaking of touching materials, um, you were saying that preservation is usually a really important part of uh, of the archival process. You know, in, in libraries, we definitely have an expectation of the books that we have are probably going to fall apart and die someday. <laughs> um, so what measures do people go to to keep archival records uh, preserved? What, what are some of the main best practices? 
Oh, there's a whole lot. Let's see. Um, there's a whole class devoted to it. There's one <laughs> devoted to physical preservation, another class devoted to digital preservation. So maybe can you give us like an example of each, like one type of material? And yeah, let me. I will focus on physical. I think because that'll yeah. be easier to explain because it's basic things. Like um, when you bring in your records, we'll often transfer to lignin-free, non-acidic materials. And so it'll be the folders, the boxes, anything that touch the paper. We will make sure it's acid-free, lignin-free, to make sure it doesn't corrode over time. Hmm. Because if you just put papers together, like an example is Xerox copies. They are just totally falling apart now. Any Xerox copies that we have just fade, especially when they come in contact with other papers. And so we have to put, often put spacing paper in between each thing to make hmm. sure it stays intact. Right. And also temperature control, pest control. Pest control is a huge thing because often these things are stored in a basement or an attic and they just get infested with all sorts of critters. <laughs> and so what a lot of archives do is they have a deep freeze zone where they'll take everything, carefully package it, and just leave it in the freezer for a couple weeks mm -hmm. to kill anything that might be on it. Like those really expensive jeans. What? 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 <laughs> heard of these pants? What? Are these really expensive, like organic, raw cotton jeans that you're not supposed to wash because they'll shrink really badly? You're just supposed so to put to them in the freezer. Freeze them? Yeah, you're supposed to stick them in the freezer every couple oh, of weeks. Weird. <laughs> but at least your pants will not have bed bugs in them. So. It's true. Yeah. All good. It's true. <laughs> All right. So I'm thinking that's a little similar in some ways to um, galleries. Yeah, right? like when we the gallery I was working at last summer, when we received a bunch of paintings from the National Gallery, they actually had to sit inside their proper storage packaging in our gallery for like 48 hours or something to acclimatize before they were unpacked. And well, yeah, that's a yeah. slightly different thing. But yeah, it is kind of similar. OK. So what about digital preservation? I mean, obviously, that's a pretty big and very new topic. But can you tell us a little bit about what you've learned about some of the efforts that are happening? Well, one of the biggest thing is um, one of the biggest issues is uh, migration and making sure uh, you don't have obsolescence. So the, a lot of materials we used 20 years ago, like floppy disks, right. it's getting increasingly hard to access these things. We have mm -hmm. to migrate all the information. And this is just going to keep snowballing as we have new types of technology to you know, come faster and faster. And so all these materials, we have to keep migrating over to newer formats and we can't really keep up with that for the most part. We don't have time to go back and reformat everything into the newest format. Hmm. And so it's a kind of race against time in a lot of ways to make sure everything is still accessible and readable. Huh. So there are kind of new formats being developed now that they hope are less likely to become obsolete? Oh, but, but most people also... who develop those don't really care about that. Like people who are developing these different formats, they don't really think about the long-term preservation abilities of it. Mm. It's like, who knows if PDS will be readable 40 years from now. If that company goes out of business, all these proprietary software, we won't be able to access. Yeah, which I guess no. is a really I know. good don't argument. Don't die, Adobe! <laughs> I know. Don't die, Adobe! <laughs> so, which I guess is a really good argument for open source software and open source formats yeah right no it is a good argument because mm. i mean stuff from 50 years ago we can't really access or the data becomes corrupted and so it has to be if it's open source we can kind of go back especially with digital forensics tools and look at what it is and migrate it to the future dude csi the internet i know i did a digital forensic presentation <laughs> where i had the csi cast <laughs> all of a sudden come on nice i almost nice. started singing it didn't oh. quite go <laughs> 
Did you uh, whip off your glasses with a terrible quip? I do a David Caruso thing. <laughs> <laughs> so you've worked now a little bit at least in libraries and archives right yeah yeah um and you're right now working in an archive at ubc i am i'm working for the ams archives which is the alma mater society so the student society so as a student archivist obviously you know don't go into confidential details I know. <laughs> but as a student archivist and as a student librarian what are some of the i don't know major differences between how your work shakes out well, what I'm doing right now for the AMS is almost more of a records management thing. Okay. And what I did in the library side was uh, more of a curator. So I arranged a collection about the Northwest for Western Washington University. So they were very different kind of things. Okay. So I guess since our topic today is archives, let's maybe talk a bit about what you're doing in the archives. So records management <laughs> is a term that we, that we hear about a lot on the yeah. library side. And we always keep hearing like... If you get a job in records management, <laughs> you'll have a job for the rest of your life, which but is it's kind of a big, scary term. Yeah. Yeah. And it sounds, I'm not going to lie, a little boring. I mean, it probably depends on the <laughs> records, right? And on your, you know, your enjoyment of the, of the work of describing them. But what is involved in records management? Like, how is that different from just sort of general archival description? I'm trying to think of a way to explain it. Kind of think of it as pre-archives. So before everything gets sent to the archives, hopefully a <laughs> records manager, this doesn't happen most of the time, but hopefully a records manager will take all the active records of an organization and make sure they follow like a functional classification scheme. So all the records can be classified by function and there's a way to find it and it's easily usable and accessible. So it's kind of organizing them up front as they're created. So yeah. when it comes time to archive them, it's not such a awful job <laughs> yeah so records managers they often deal with active and semi-active records the archives deal with non-active records oh, so once we're yeah. done with them at the records management center then we send them to the actual official archives hmm. so what kinds of organizations have records managers well i think all of them should <laughs> <laughs> anyone who creates any sort of record should have them right yes i mean pretty much any business or government organization should or does have a records manager hmm. i'm having visions in my head of like the box of receipts that Maggie Gyllenhaal <laughs> brings out in Stranger Than Fiction when it comes oh, yeah. time when for her audited. to do her taxes. Yes. Yeah. So oh. that's what you don't want to see as a records manager. No, that is not what we want to see. <laughs> but that, that human tendency towards entropy when it comes to stuff that you've worked with and are done with, it's probably why records managers are always <laughs> going to be in work, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> And it's like normally you like probably wouldn't be related to her as like an individual person as a records manager. I'm mostly interested in organizations. Right. So like all the individual people like at the AMS, we have the student council members and executives and all the businesses that are in the sub. All of their records come to me and oh, I have wow, to kind okay. of figure out where to put them all. And there's sort of a pre-existing organization scheme that yeah. you're working with? It's generally by function and the kind of different areas. Okay. So like the executives have their own kind of area and then all the businesses have their own area. <laughs> so do some of those standards that you were talking about earlier, RAD and ISAT and all of those, are they no. used by records managers or are the, is there a different? Generally there's um, ISOs, which are, I don't really want to go into explain. They're <laughs> international like, standards we use to like follow records management principles. Okay. So we don't really have a standard like RAD for the most part, because those are mostly used for finding aids, which okay. we don't have in a record okay. center. Because I guess the functions are going to vary so much from organization to organization. Yeah. That, you, that makes sense. That makes sense. So what I found fascinating when you first started describing your current job in the archive to me is that you're dealing with emails also. Yeah. So emails, any emails that are sent from their, like, from official emails of the people who are involved with the organization are archived. 
Yep. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> we have, like we don't have the most advanced record management system for emails because we are a fairly small organization. So what happens is they come in. Every single person who works in the AMS has an automatic forwarding thing. So any email they send comes to me automatically. Okay. And then we just have it in Access. And we have different folders in Access where I can just chuck the emails into. So you're effectively Big Brother. A little bit, yeah. I read everyone's <laughs> emails. And I have to delete the stuff that does not belong in the AMS. <laughs> so there is some like editorializing on the records manager's part in terms of this isn't relevant to the organization. Oh, yeah. And I just signed a confidentiality agreement to work right. for the AMS to say, like, I won't blab about all this gossip that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I would imagine, especially if people are using their work or, like, organizational email a lot, that they forget that this yeah, process is happening, right? They do. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be interesting because I'm actually giving a tour to some of the new student executives tomorrow. And I have to explain that I actually read all your emails. <laughs> so be careful what you write because I will see it. <laughs> But you can't say anything. I can't actually say anything about what's inside of them, but I can say that I can read them. <laughs> it's probably a good idea for them to know that up front, right? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds in a lot of ways like like the archi or archives, or at least records management, is about, it's almost preventative in some ways, right? Like if you manage your records effectively, you're preventing all kinds of problems in the future. Yeah. If you're aware up front that all of your documents are going to be <laughs> saved and poured through by an archivist, then maybe you're careful about being professional in them. <laughs> Makes yeah. a lot of sense. It's a little less messy than, say, a library and their user yeah. population. I know? mean, most of what ours is used for is for research or someone saying, uh, there is this legal agreement we had with this vendor and I can't figure it out. Can you go and find it for me so I can look at the terms and conditions? I'm like, okay. So I trundle off and I go find it and I scan it and I send it to them. Is that pretty frequent that people are using the archive for research? or? Yeah, for yeah. within the AMS, yes. Yeah. We don't often have outside people come in and mm -hmm. look at it. But usually it's people within the organization who can't figure out something. And they're like, I can't remember this. Or this happened 10 years ago. Go find this for me. <laughs> or it's like there was once like a party for the council members from 10 years ago. And they wanted us to go find pictures of them when they were on student council. So they could have a nice party and a slideshow. Aww. So cute. And it's one of those things just like digitization, which we talked about a while ago. But it's one of those things that you don't think about, especially in the digital age. You just kind yeah. of assume that it's all there. <laughs> that if we want it, we can go find it, right? And really, there are people who are making yeah. sure that that's the case. I know. And, it, and often they're used in a legal sense, which is not really something we deal with because we don't get really sued or anything very often at the AMS. Yeah. <laughs> but often they need it for a legal record to say, like, we followed these regulations or we followed this or it can right. prove that there was some sort of malfeasance. So like a corporate archive or a government archive would probably yeah. be more concerned with that. And uh, they have to make sure they follow retention schedules very carefully because if they don't, they can be charged with spoilation, which is getting rid of evidence. And that's a whole oh, wow. lot of court charges. Wow. <laughs> so there's a lot of work in sort of the legal realm for archivists yeah. and record ma records managers as well, right? There's pretty strict rules according to different governments about what you should keep and what you should get rid of and how long you can keep things for. Hmm. And if you don't follow those rules, then trouble can find you. <laughs> Which is why you need a records manager. <laughs> Hire and a slice grad today. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing my finger guns. 
Um, so I've in in the digitization lab, I work with a lot of uh, rare books and special collections, and now I am actually working with UBC archival materials. And the one question that I know to ask every archivist: <laughs> How do you feel about gloves? You personally, how do you oh. feel about gloves? Depends on the materials. Okay. Generally, if they're fragile, I will use gloves. If not, actually, I'm pretty. I, I'm anti-glove person a little bit. I got to admit, like I, you know, to handle things carefully and from yeah. the corners, and I wash my hands always. I mean, unless it's an incredibly old document where like the oil from my fingers were stain it forever. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty anti-glove. Well, and in some cases, gloves can actually be a bad thing in terms of fragile materials, right? Yeah, because especially they if they're cotton gloves. And they like, especially because, you know, you don't often get nicely fitted gloves. They're not yeah. going to go get you custom gloves when you work at an archive. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? I'm just thinking about all the like prints and sketches and whatever that I would have dropped in the gallery yeah. vault if I had been wearing gloves. <laughs> like it was much easier to handle them with hands. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if you're doing like restorative measures to something like a painting, then definitely want gloves because mm. you're like touching the actual surface right. yeah. but like when i worked at westerns uh we a book vault i didn't use gloves yeah i know i know ubc is kind of the the rbsc in the university archive is no gloves except for photographs yeah photographs are kind mm. of thing because if you touch the emulsion then it can get destroyed yeah which also means that they're in terms of what you were talking about before with the acid-free storage materials and everything yeah photographs are a little different as well right because of Oh, I could go on a whole segment about <laughs> photographs. But yeah, like each photograph, you don't really want them touching each other. Right. You want each photograph in a nice little non-acidic sleeve that protects it's funny, it. This might make me old, but I've definitely seen that happen before. Like I'm thinking of old boxes of photos mm -hmm. in my parents' house. Oh, yeah. You take them out after not looking at them for 10 or 15 years and they're stuck to each other. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, that happens all the time. <laughs> it's really interesting. If you do take preservation, they talk about what chemicals are in all these different photographs from all these different years back to like 150 years. Oh, and no. you get like crash course on all of it. Lead and silver. I know, yeah, the silver. Yeah. Especially when you look at an old black and white photo, you can see yeah. kind of a shimmer on it. That's from the silver on it. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I guess my last question might be a little bit controversial. Um, why do archivists hate librarians? <laughs> <laughs> we had to go there eventually. <laughs> so since I'm a librarian and an archivist, do yeah. I hate myself? <laughs> <laughs> You're allowed. Uh, maybe, maybe it just gives you a unique perspective because you can see both sides and you can see the good work that we're both doing. Well, I think a little bit is because um, a lot of library schools are kind of pushing this integration that archives are just a subsection of libraries. Mm -hmm. And there's this pushback saying, no, we're our own field. We have our own scientific principles and rules that we follow. We shouldn't just be glommed into libraries. But that's increasingly kind of seems to be what's happening. And also, especially, there's a lot of librarians getting archivist jobs. And I think that creates a little tension yeah. when the archivists are like, no, we specially trained for this for two years. It's not yes. the same thing. And so you definitely think that there is a distinct division in the knowledge you are gaining from each degree that is, that is separate and that is important and that oh, yeah. will be important. Yeah, I totally think there's a distinction between them. I mean, if I just took the library degree, I don't feel like I'd be qualified to work in an archive. I'm sure there's other some differences, and you could take some archives courses to mix with your library degree, mm -hmm. and I'm sure that would work out. But I feel like they are definitely distinct. Hmm. And so, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, is there is there one you're finding more 
more attractive than the other at this point in your degree? Well, I like to merge them and work in a special collection. Hey. Whoa! But have cake, <laughs> eat cake. <laughs> That's how the saying goes. So right? I'll keep working on floor six of VPL, and you can come work on floor seven. This sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be far, far away from any public library. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Emily. That was that was a great discussion. I really hope that it'll help um, kind of illuminate the the discussion around archives, what they are, why they're different, and um, why we do train differently for them. Yeah, and I, I yeah. learned a lot, and I learned <laughs> a lot with you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you have any specific questions about archives, or you think that Emily should research a topic and come back on the show, because Ooh, let me tell you, she does do research. Um, please tweet at us let us know what you want to know about archives if there's a particular kind of material you think is cool that you'd like to know how to preserve better or um you know if you'd like to know anything else really mm -hmm. yeah. and and keep pushing awareness out there not just of the good work librarians do but of the good work archivists do because i think a lot of that sort of librarians getting archivist jobs and this tension and whatever is also just a it's a pr issue that both, yeah. both <laughs> professions have to deal with right absolutely yeah, yeah. Uh, and if people want to tweet at you? Uh, I am at Bibliobooth. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. <laughs> that was an amazing conversation. Yeah, I Like I said, I live so with her, and I still learn so much new yeah. stuff today. Oh, totally. Yeah. Well, I almost did the MAS program as well as the MLAS, but uh, didn't. I think we're all where we're supposed to be, but it was fascinating yeah. learning more about, yeah, the, the flip side of what we do, right, in some ways. You know, and that I was really impressed with that final, final question I asked was kind of half joking, mm. but Emily actually had a really great answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so, that there is a little bit of a, you know, feud-ish sensibility sometimes between the two professions, and we should openly talk about why, right? Yeah and, yeah, and and I think that if we open those lines of dialogue and communication, we can uh, learn a little bit more about why why the work is different and why the work has to be different, and mm -hmm. and um, kind of having to to bridge the bridge those relationships and and bridge those kinds of of documents and. Yeah, and sort of, you know, attack documents and users from both sides to yep. better serve both, right? That was fantastic. Um, Emily also, speaking of the show and Emily, uh, has a great suggestion for a new segment. So mm -hmm. we'd like to put the call out to all of you. Um, if you are a new grad who has successfully secured employment of some kind, mm -hmm. we want to hear from you. Yeah. <laughs> um, because what Emily thought would be really interesting, and I completely agreed, and we've had a few people talking about it on Twitter now, um, would be to have a new segment about sort of effective interview strategies, effective application strategies, odd questions that came out of nowhere that you had to deal with in an interview, mm -hmm. things that can help us all get to where you are, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, if you're willing to help us out there, we would love to hear from you yeah. via email, via Tumblr, Twitter, however you're comfortable getting in touch. And even if you wanted to be on a whole episode, we can make that happen. Mm -hmm. And even if you don't live in BC, we'd be more than happy to set up a uh, conference call. 
Absolutely. So I guess that's it for us this week. Sam, who uh, does yeah. our amazing theme song? That would be Mr. Jonathan Colton. Wow. I've had Tom Cruise crazy in my head all day today. <laughs> I was telling someone about Joko Cruise crazy. Yeah. And uh, encouraging them to listen to the fantastic episode we did about that. And now I've just been humming all day. <laughs> um, but our theme song is uh, Glasses off the album Artificial Heart. And I just can't say enough good things about both that album and the rest of his work. He's a super fun guy and really, you know, an example of what you can do on the internet with a yep. little bit of talent right oh the internet is amazing <laughs> and let's just leave it on that thought the internet and we will catch you on the proverbial flip side what's the same?